Welcome to Rockable Retail Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, we're back on the mic, and we have a great interview with the founders of a remarkable retailer, The Citizenry. Now, I was not aware. I actually had seen their store in Soho and then connected the dots when you started telling me about them. Tell me about them a little bit and, and how you met the founders. Well, let's see. I think it's six or seven years ago where a guy that I know here in Dallas said, hey, would you go have coffee with uh, these two women that I've met, Rachel and Carly? They have a retail concept that they are trying to raise money for, and they would like some feedback. And so uh, Rachel, Carly, and I met up at Houndstooth Coffee in Dallas, and uh, they took me through their their pitch deck. They were just doing, they had some friends and family money, I guess, at that point, but they were mm-hmm. doing a seed round, and I was just... Well, I like the concept very much, which everybody will get to hear more about in a second. Uh, but, but, and I like them very much, but I, I also thought it was one of the most coherent, compelling pitch decks. I, like, I was just blown away by how thorough mm. and well done it was. And I was like, I don't know if this is an idea that's got any legs, but I like them and I, and I like their approach to it. And so I referred them on to a venture capital firm I worked with that was, uh, became one of the first investors. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I'd seen the store. I'd actually walked through the store in Soho, but uh, didn't make any connection. So I'm really, uh, it's a great interview. So uh, really looking forward to learning more uh, about them and their origin story and, and uh, where they're heading with the brand. So we'll get to that. A quick shout out to all our great listeners. Uh, thank you for, for all your support and uh, uh, be sure if you have the opportunity, take the opportunity, give us a, give us a rating, maybe even a five-star rating if you I I think, Michael, they should do that right now. I think we'll just pause. Stop. They can hit the little pause button. (laughs) Go do it right now. No time like the present. And we really appreciate it. Nothing motivates like a deadline. We're not going to continue the podcast until we start to see that. Anyway, no, thanks, everyone. Really, thanks to everyone for listening. It's really, uh, it's humbling, really. So thank you. Um, All right, well, let's pop into the news. Uh, A relatively slow week, yet still action-packed with... Lots going on. Let's talk about uh, inflation nation. So there's some numbers yeah. coming out uh, that are showing some pretty intense inflation numbers. How do you think all this is going to sort out? And, and what are your thoughts uh, for 2022 and beyond? Well, this is going to be a big story, continue to be a big story. The U.S., um, I think, had the highest inflation in one month than it's had in 40 years. So, mm. uh, you know, we've really been in this environment for the longest time, it seems like, where we really didn't talk about inflation. You know, it's kind of kicking along at 2%, 3%, something like that. So it wasn't a big factor. And now inflation is just top of mind. You know, I think it's kind of this perfect storm of accelerated consumer demand uh, because of high discretionary income, government stimulus, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, as we've talked about a million times, certain categories like really, really getting amplified because of some of the pandemic forces and then the supply chain continuing to be a mess. So I suspect, you know, even though I did study economics. I'm certainly not a professional economist. Um, I suspect this is going, inflation is going to be with us for quite some time. I kind of think it will get better. or Maybe it's wishful thinking because I do think consumer, this accelerated consumer demand will start to wane a bit, both because mm-hmm. we don't have all that government stimulus. We'll get through at some point, you know, kind of all this pent up demand. And as we 
kind of open back up, that's an opportunity for consumers to start to shift some of their spending back towards services away from products. So I think that will tamp things down a little bit and, uh, you know, aspects of the supply chain will improve. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, if uh, you guys up in Canada keep messing with the the transport, (laughs) maybe the supply chain thing is not going to get solved. Can you do anything about that? Uh, well, I think something's about to be done. We're recording this on Friday. Let's talk about blockades at the border. I mean, and, and this, of course, is not a political podcast. Uh, lots going on here in Canada. But let me put a number to you. The amount of traffic that of goods between Canada and the U.S. at this one point, the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Detroit, is $450 million a day that goes between our two great nations. So yeah, we're having this, uh, you know, our very own Canadian seditionists with foreign provocateurs, compromised police. <laughs> spies. Yeah, I know children as shields, lots of political mendacity, but I think uh, this is all coming to uh, an end fairly closely, but yeah, really it's had a tremendous impact on trade uh, from a whole bunch of different reasons, uh, trade of food. You know, I have to talk to retailers who have entire truckloads of fresh fruit. Of course, Canada you know, we, we import a tremendous amount of fresh fruit up from the U.S., whether it's California, sure. but most likely Florida. Uh, you know, this, this fruit, as you know, is just in time, right? I mean, it's packed on the truck, and, and it actually, you know, ripens on the truck on the journey right? and arrives at the store shelves, which has worked where, very well for consumers and, and retailers. Are like, they, you know, they've lo- they're losing trailerfuls of fresh fruit. So, you yeah, know, there's, well, there's a whole bunch of implications that are not good. So, yeah, well, it certainly couldn't have come at a, at a worse time. Um, you know, yep. the other thing I think from an inflation standpoint to watch, and I've seen some commentary on this recently, is the difference between those retailers that have really strong pricing power. In other words, you know, they can mm. raise prices and not have it affect demand very much. We've seen several retailers that crying about all these pressures, but actually you've had record earnings and how much of that is just the, the nature of the categories they compete in and how much mm-hmm. of that is them frankly taking advantage of a difficult situation. So I sort of hope there'll be some pressure on some of these companies to not be so, so greedy, but you know, I've thought about that my entire life and nothing much seems yeah. to happen on that front. But then clearly we have retailers that are really getting hit by input costs and fulfillment costs going up that just don't have the ability to raise their prices much, if at all. And that, and that's, you know, obviously going to continue to be a real challenge for probably the balance of the year, if not longer. I mean, to put a number to it, uh, I was talking to a retailer who's telling me in, in the before time, they paid about 7,500 to 8,500 for a container of goods. They're now paying between 28 and 35,000 for that yeah. same container of goods. I mean, that's going to leave a mark, right? I mean, it's an input cost, but you know, that's a, you know, that's a tremendous impact. And as you said, both price elasticity on the goods they sell and then the competitive landscape dictates uh, the degree to which they can either absorb that or take price, as you know, the merchants would say, right? All right, let's talk about uh, Peloton. We've talked about it at length. They're back in the news today for a whole bunch of good and not so good reasons. New leadership. They had, uh, um, you know, their stock price rebounded back. But uh, fundamentally, what are you what are you thinking? And, and what are you thinking about how they've kind of, you know, conducted themselves over the past uh, couple of weeks well, as well? Last week we were, I think, mostly focused on who might buy them, and mm-hmm. you raised this this issue of um, you know whoever buys them perhaps catching a a falling knife. I don't think they helped themselves very much. They reported their earnings and gave some guidance, which you know headline terrible. Um, yeah, they laid off uh, twenty two hundred people 
or something, and that caused a lot of consternation. Did I hear they of, cut? They they people found out because their Slack channel wasn't working. Because yeah, well, one is right. You think by now these companies would figure out their there are better ways to handle this, but yeah, several people apparently, or most people learned, I guess, because their Slack channel was cut off. And then <laughs> there were people that like, um, stormed the virtual town hall meeting or something. And lots Probably of just left on a list, right? I mean, yeah, oops, I, 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 yeah I, so, I, I uploaded the wrong list to zoom or something. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, there was a, I guess another episode where somebody died from a heart a billions episode or whatever was yeah. different. So, I mean, they can't catch a break, but I think the broader point, I mean, hopefully companies will learn to handle or treat employees a little bit better, but you know, that's, it's the outlook for this brand's not, mm-hmm. not great. And whether that is the totally total addressable market is much smaller than people thought, whether it was, um, you know, obviously they've spent way too much money relative to revenue to have the kind of loss they did. So yeah, new leadership, it'll just be interesting to see if they can get, you know, a very, obviously a very well-known brand, lots of loyal customers, but, um, the upside potential here and getting to profitability appear to be very significant challenges. Canada goose gets their wings clipped. So Canada goose had some, uh, had a big, uh, turbulence, so to speak, uh, where their stock price took a big hit and, and, uh, they made an announcement about some slowing of momentum. So what did, what did you think of all that? I mean, it, it seems the brand continued to, to grow. It's back to kind of this discussion of wholesale retail. There's a lot of things wrapped up in this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little, uh, maybe you understand this better, far better than I do. I'm a little confused by the news because we've seen pretty good results and some of it for sure is easy comparisons from mm. quite a lot of high-end brands. You know, the rich keep getting richer, uh, et cetera. So there's, there's clearly spending power there and with people going back out a little bit more, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, so for for Canada Goose to, to struggle as much now, I know they are very, very reliant on the China market, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps more so than, than many other brands. Um, and that seemed to be problem um but i don't know what, what do you think it was a little a little confusing to me yeah it's interesting because their sales were in china they reported up 60 percent, which is good numbers to have but they've had a couple of um missteps in uh, some own goals that you would say in the soccer world or football world in china with uh, some criticisms around uh, posts and uh, some return policies so now they've acquiesced to a 14-day exchange policy in china uh, I guess, you know, what China gives, China takes away, right? So the momentum yeah. goes with you again, yeah, and, and that's a pretty, uh, a pretty big swing if you're not careful. And I think they're also talking about slowdowns in, uh, in Europe. I don't know. Maybe they're the goose in the coal mine, so to speak. You know, is, is, are we now starting to see, you know, we've long talked about the transition from goods to services as people's lives get to whatever new normal looks like. Maybe this is an indicator of uh, how many more great jackets. I love the product, by the way. I have one myself. I wish them all the best, but uh, they'll be interesting to watch and for a whole bunch. Yeah. Of I mean, in a, in a weird way, they're sort of like what we've said about Peloton and some other more kind of big ticket brands where the product line is pretty limited. You know, when you buy that new washer and dryer, you buy that new yeah. sofa, you buy a Peloton, you buy a Canada goose. I mean, I realize it has some other products, but you know, when you think about their core item, I don't know many, many people, certainly it's not the broadest part of the market that's buying three or four Canada goose yeah. coats. Right. So okay. once you've found that, you know, center of the bullseye kind of customer, uh, that's probably more about selling them other kinds of product items. But, um, yeah, yeah we, they may have gotten sort of this COVID bounce uh, that mm-hmm. is going to be hard mm-hmm. to 
to take to the next level. All right. Well, listen, uh, that's a great overview. As I said, uh, we'll be back as we always are each and every week. We kind of hit the high notes, uh, the hot takes, so to speak. But now let's get into our fantastic interview with the founders of The Citizenry. Well, Michael and I are excited to welcome Rachel and Carly, the founders of The Citizenry, to our podcast, fellow Dallasites, maybe not originally from Dallas, but anyway, we're not too far away from each other. But uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you guys today? We're great, Steve. Thank you so much for having us. Excited to be here. Well, thanks. We've actually been chasing you for a little while, but you were you were busy building your business and raising some money and things like that, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, what we'd like to do when we start off the podcast is just have each of you share a little bit about your your background, your professional journey, and kind of how you guys came together to found a company together. So, uh, Carly, would you mind kicking off on that? Sure. So my background, um, I am a brand strategist by trade. I uh, got my master's in integrated marketing right out of undergrad where I met Rachel, which we can talk about a little bit later, um, and then went on to have a career at ad agencies in New York, helping some of the biggest brands in the world endear themselves to consumers like Oreo, Fisher-Price, Jamaica Tourism Board. That was a fun one. But I was getting to the stage in my career where I wanted to put my money where my mouth was, uh, go build a brand that shaped consumer culture for the better and a brand that was a combination of a number of my personal passions for travel, design, um, doing something good in the world. And it was conversations around those passions that led Rachel and I back together. I, this is Rachel, and I started uh, my career on, on finance. I did my undergraduate in accounting, my master's in finance, and then jumped into the world of strategy consulting at Bain & Company, uh, working with companies on wide variety of uh, issues, but then ultimately uh, ended up focusing uh, on private equity uh, backed companies within the Bain practice and uh, was actually spending a decent amount of time working in global supply chains in Asia. And I think uh, that experience really began to give me the insight into some of the biggest issues that are facing our world today around both human rights and the environment and just how significantly global supply chains were impacting those things and how closely they were tied to the global financial markets. And so those two things uh, began to get me thinking more seriously about how I was going to personally use uh, my skills and my time to try to make a positive impact um, with uh, what I was doing professionally. Tell us about Citizenry. I'm on the website. I've actually been in the store. I wandered in years ago. I probably just wait when you first opened. Beautiful store. And I love the assortment. I was looking at the Hanoki wood from Japan. Um, I think I got a few things in my wish list. Tell me about the inspiration and, and the gap you're looking to fill in the marketplace. Not like furniture isn't a a crowded category, and and how are you positioning the brand to to win and and to stand out? Sure, Michael, that's a great question. So, years ago, Rachel and I were had just moved from New York and were furnishing a home, you know, more than just a small studio space for the first time, and the two of us just found the home decor shopping experience. You know, to your point, a little cluttered, a little mm-hmm. uninspiring, and there was just a lot of mass-produced, dime a dozen, you saw the same types of things in the market. And what we really saw, because we both come from some consumer insight background, is that 
consumers were really wanting more premium artisanal things, uh, particularly the millennial consumer, which we are. And so we saw that demand shift categories like food with the farm to table movement and fashion with the rise of some independent designers. And we thought it was only a matter of time before this desire for more premium, artisanal, interesting things from mm. around the world would hit the home decor market. And so when you're thinking about the home decor market at the time, people could either find those things on Etsy, scouring around, or really high-end boutiques. And we saw this massive opportunity for a brand in the middle that you know, made these really beautiful, artisanal, well-crafted things from around the world more accessible to all and did so uh, in a way that was tailored to our generation's style, standards, and, and values. So creating a supply chain that did good in the world, and Rachel can talk about that mm. a little bit more, but also a brand that just made the experience more inspiring, something like the next best thing to traveling the world and, and meeting these makers and bringing that to life online. Yeah, it's it's wonderful product. Rachel, let's pick up on that. So social responsibility, clearly at the core of everything you do. When I hear things about sourcing around the world, you know, everyone now knows these words supply chain compared to a couple of years ago where it was kind of an esoteric function. Talk about how you, you it's almost like a, a round peg in a square hole some days is how you put these two words in the in the same place, a, a efficient supply chain that allows you to, you know, put the right margin, get the right product and you know, sustainability and is it sustainable? Like how, how do you, how do you do those two things at the same time? It's a tremendous challenge and you are going to give up something to get something else. But I think the experience that I had uh, working in global supply chains and for massive companies prior was that I really began to realize that most of the products we consume today require tremendous amounts of human labor at very low cost. And that's why people have sourced uh, internationally and brought those products to the U.S. for years. And mm -hmm. I think when you begin to see those conditions and challenges that exist uh across the supply chains today begin to realize just the impact that we were having. And so in order to create a more sustainable supply chain, I think we have to talk about what is fairly paid uh, from a human standpoint. And then also you have to think about uh, sustainability in terms of the environment. And I think uh, companies often lean to address the environmental one because it is, I think, a little bit easier and maybe a little bit more cost effective. Um, mm -hmm. But you hear very few people talk about what it means to have fair wages, have fairly paid labor, and what mm -hmm. is you know, considered a sustainable wage. And so um, it's something that has been foundational to our model from the beginning is that uh, we work with artisans around the world to create these beautifully crafted home goods. Uh, and we are working with really high quality materials and really skilled craftsmen in order to do that. And we are also doing our best to ensure that they are making well above minimum wage. Our average is between two and a half and three times mm. uh, minimum wage. And that we're really pushing into that living wage and uh, that everything we are doing is abiding by world fair trade principles. Um, and I think the only way that is possible is for it to be a core foundational principle of your business and of your business model. And that uh, as you continue, you remain true to that. And then you make uh, trade-offs in other parts of your business in terms of we can't uh, pay uh, maybe the highest 
market rates in terms of our team salaries here, or maybe you can't make the investment into uh, really beautiful, uh, you know, brand awareness marketing, like things like that. You're going mm-hmm. to make some trade-offs when mm-hmm. you give up uh, certain margin dollars. Um, but for us, I think that trade-off in terms of uh, how the products was made, were, are made is, is really important. I just want to follow that thread for a little bit. Talk about the tradecraft of finding those suppliers. Because in any world, not just the COVID era, finding great suppliers, great vendors, and, mm-hmm. and you know, sourcing that and working with them, you know, even even taking away all your great strategies around sustainability and fair trade is not easy. How do you how do you guys go about finding those? Diamond, and not even diamonds in the rough, but those artisanal products that that make sense for you. Because then you got to filter that down too. It's got to be the right product, the right place, delivered at the right time, at the right volume. Talk, talk about that a little bit. It's a great question. Everything that we do at the citizenry has been designed and developed for the citizenry. We're not just going out and finding a product and then bringing it to market. So mm. I think that's an important distinction. But then additionally, we're looking for really high potential partners that um, maybe don't have the experience of exporting their product, but are doing really beautiful things or really beautiful work within their home country. And we are bringing an additional skill set to them to help them around either capacity building in terms of uh, their production, uh, Mm. getting ready to export, um, managing logistics. I think we have had to take the approach of being much more flexible, much more adaptable, and much uh, more involved in the building process of our artisan partners groups there I, I don't think there are many of our partners today that we walked into and they were ready to go um, it has been a building process just as we have been building and scaling our own business we've been building and scaling these artisan cooperatives around the world and I think Rachel that's an important distinction from you know, for how we started is that you know these Michael to your point these products didn't exist at the right price and the mm-hmm. right time and the right design. And so what we do is we go find partners, we go find people with incredible capabilities. And as Rachel said, we work with them versus finding products around the world. And I think that's why we mm. chose the name The Citizenry in the beginning, because we're about a collective of people working together to create and bring these products to market, not just us going sourcing and putting it on a website because that already existed. Well, it's, it's really amazing. What I mean, I realize you guys are still relatively early in, in the whole process here, but I was reflecting um, in preparation for this interview about when I first met you guys, I, I think it was close to seven years ago mm-hmm. when you were first raising money and we were introduced by a mutual acquaintance who asked, me, um, or I guess you were interested in getting perhaps some advice. I don't know my, I don't know if my advice was very useful, but I do remember being struck by how well thought out and comprehensive and analytically based, I guess, for, for lack of a better term, your pitch deck was and where the state of your beta website was at that point. And it was surprising not to get too in the weeds, but I've certainly seen a lot of pitch decks over the years and many of them are pretty light on detail and pretty uh, high on aspiration, I guess I'll say, but I'm just sort of curious, what, what was your, you know, you talked a little bit about the inspiration of the brand, but as you approached deciding what this business was going to look like and how you were going to raise money 
and build it. Uh, what, what was the approach you took? Because it did seem like you had a, a really unique angle on as compared to at least um, most of what I'd seen. You're very kind. I appreciate it. Uh, I do think what you were seeing uh, at the point that we met probably a year and a half to two years into our journey from when Carly and I had begun exploring the idea of the citizenry uh, was a result of a lot of research and a lot of careful uh, modeling and thinking. But Carly and I both come from a consumer insights background where we need to understand who the customer is, what they're motivated by, what their purchase criteria are. And we spent almost a year after beginning to talk about the citizenry doing that level of primary research and identifying uh, those sorts of things and then uh, building out the hypothesis of what that brand and what that company could look like. And then we went and built a beta with our own money uh, before we ever went out to really raise any sort of capital. Um, and so we, we have approached everything uh, about building the citizenry from a very analytical, even conservative uh, perspective, just as a reflection almost of who Carly and I are. Carly, anything you would add to that? No, I was just reflecting as you were talking, you know, Rachel and I have really different skill sets and bring different things to the table, but where we overlap and almost our love language, like how we speak to each other is data strategy. And so, you know, I'm a more creative person, but I'm driven by data and strategy. And she's mm-hmm. comes from that uh, background, but then has a love for beautiful things and, and creating experiences that uh, break through in the market. So in many ways, it's the way the two of us align because our brains think so differently about everything else. But when it comes to consumer insights, where the market opportunity is and how we go after it, that's where we can get aligned really quickly. So I think it just manifested in our deck that way seven yeah. years ago early on and it has just continued to be the guiding light and principles between the organization very fair well that, that reminds me of a question i was going to ask i'm kind of curious um actually the a business that i founded a long long time ago uh was the product of a of a partnership where i think we had mm-hmm. very different skill sets but we did overlap in some important ways how, how is how does that work being uh being partners and and sharing responsibility just for other people that may be thinking about their leadership structure or maybe working better with their business partner. uh, What are some of the secrets to that over time? Sure. I was going to say very clear camps and um, very deep respect with one another in terms of decision-making across those camps. But ultimately the organization is divided clearly on which one of us is responsible and has kind of the final say in in any area. So the way we break out the business is that, you know, everything that you see, not to make it too simple, but um, falls under my camp. So uh, the brand, the marketing, the site, the product design, and everything that makes the business work and run and make money um, falls under Rachel's camp from operations, finance, strategy, supply chain, legal accounting, all the things. I have no idea how she does all of them, but it, (laughs) We have never, it's never been a confusion on who makes the final decision Mm -hmm. about anything because of that. And then you have to still have really deep respect and the ability to collaborate across the things because we're also spread really thin. And a lot of things that, you know, our expertise is only deep in a few areas. And so we also have to work with one another because we always make each other's thinking a little bit 
better, I guess, um, in mm-hmm. each of the camps. Rach, would you add anything there? I, I think the biggest driver for us, uh, both in terms of why the citizenry has been able to be as successful as it has been and why we are still here today leading it is that at its core, we always wanted to work together and learn from each other. And that we always felt like if you put the two of us in a room, we would learn something from the other and that the end result of what we were creating would be better. And I think it's remarkable to sit here and look back and think that that has been true over an eight year period without any real major ups and downs in that uh, point, but it's just been a real sense of, I think, steadiness and constancy for both each other. And then also I think the business more broadly. We've also said that our, one of our greatest goals is to make it out on the other end uh, still with a deep friendship. And we maintain that um, even through the challenging times. And I think it has to be a goal and a priority to both of you um, or many of you, if you're going to go into something like this to say, you know, <laughs> and you want to work together for eight years that you're going to make it out on the other side. Cause it's not easy and it's a rocky road yeah. for sure. Rachel, let me pu- pick up on the discussion around not just building the company, but growing the company. So talk about the work you've been doing to grow the company and, and putting the capital that you raised to work where, you know, where do you start? How do you, how do you approach that from, you know, you got a blank sheet of paper and you have a dollar in front of you. And how do you, how do you start prioritizing and building for the future with the resources at hand? For us, I think it's been very clear. We started the citizenry largely focused on decor items that were very statement making with you in your own home, but on the soft goods side, right? The rugs, the pillows, the blankets. And as we are building the business, we are becoming much more of that whole home player uh, that you can shop any part of your home for. So not only can you buy the rug and the pillow for us that really defines your aesthetic and defines your style, but you can buy the best linen bedding in the world and you can buy the uh, softest, most durable uh, waffle towns from Japan. And we're thinking more broadly as we build Mm. out uh, this business. And that is even taking us into hard goods and furniture um, where you doing the nightstands and the sofas and the beds and, and that world as well. So I think it's really building the business both from a product standpoint, from a product standpoint into that whole home brand, but then also uh, becoming more and more of an omni-channel brand, right? Uh, right. We have one retail store in New York. It's been incredibly successful for us um, continuing to build out both our retail strategy, um, but then also just our channel strategy more broadly overall. How do you think about the cadence of that growth? You know, in other words, we've used the word sustainable. Let's use it in a different context. You know, the growth that is sustainable, not too fast, not too slow at the right pace. Like, do you have a, mm-hmm. a framework in mind that you think about how, how and where and how fast we can go based on what, what you think will build a, a company to last? I do think there are rhythms to that, right? Like this, the year and a half period that we are in right now, post series B is really a building period for us. And we may not be chasing sales at the same level because we're playing some of the infrastructure and some of the foundational uh, building blocks within our team to be able to handle that growth. Mm. Um, and so I think there, there are 
really, for lack of a better word, rhythms uh, to how a business grows and scales. And, and then you hit tipping points where you need to go back and uh, rethink your strategy or invest more deeply behind the scenes. And then uh, points in which you're really leaning in and uh, growing as much as you possibly can from an external perspective. So it seems, and I, and I know we've had discussions on and off about this over the years, because like one of my little side projects seems to be getting into, uh, which is, you know, incredibly fascinating customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, all those kinds of things. But you seem to have resisted the temptation to do what a lot of the other digitally native vertical brands, and I don't know if you'd like to be thought of in that respect, but in any event, you know, many of them have done sort of this moonshot approach to building a brand where they've raised a ton of money, thrown a lot of it at, at branding and uh, digital marketing and, and so forth, and then have kind of woken up with a hangover. Can you just talk a little bit about how you've, you've thought about the marketing side of it in particular and how maybe that analytic-based approach has caused you to take a, a different approach? I don't know, Carly or Rachel, whether you want to take that one on. I think we've always been more data-driven, and, that, and that's clear in how we've answered some of these questions, but we've always built the business around a lifetime value play. And it was never about a single product or a single category because we knew that that would just be, to your point, chasing an acquisition and having a hangover. But building the business from the ground up and thinking about CAC to you know LTV ratios and how much we could spend at different times based on where we are there and just thinking about our metrics more holistically in that sense. You know, this has been a, basically a masterclass of entrepreneurship and and uh, and growth. So it's really been a treat to listen. I have I have a, a funny question for given the state of the business growth. What's next? I mean, it seems like uh, lots is happening. Uh, you know, it, it, would I see perhaps some at some point be able to buy your product from here in Canada? Do you envision wholesale mm-hmm. as part of the formula? What? How are you thinking about what comes next? Lots of exciting things. Uh, I think. For us, first and foremost, it's going to be about continuing to build out the products uh, that we offer. And then second, uh, to really be focused on building out uh, our retail presence. So those are the next two big things, but that's a three to five year strategy. So it won't happen overnight, but we're, we're getting there. Yeah, fantastic. We're really on the path to being this go-to destination for modern global citizens. And we know what that means as a whole home offering and huh. an omni-channel brand. And so we have, you know, Rachel alluded to it. Um, we're building out furniture in all areas um, of the home and making plans for additional channels and how the brand manifests there to grow into that broader vision. And then I think beyond that, there is so much uh, that we're going to be rolling out in the next couple of years in terms of setting new standards for sustainability and for fair trade. And that's, I think, a really exciting spot uh, for Carly and I to to get to uh, be focused on as well. That's a good point. Hmm. Well, you know, this has been wonderful. And, and when Steve introduced the brand to me and he said you were truly remarkable, and I have to echo that after listening to both the business strategy and just the vision, the merchandising vision behind it. So, you know, on behalf of Steve, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Remarkable Retail. It's been a real treat to uh, listen to uh, get a peek inside how you think about building business and, and what you see coming out from the other side of the journey. So thanks again, Rachel and Carly, for making the time to, uh, to speak with Steve and I. Of course, Michael, Steve, thank you very much for having us. It's been fun. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great interviews and insights and new episodes will show up each and every week. 
Sure to check out our YouTube channel. And last but not least, tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and co-host of the Conversations of Commerce Next podcast, the voice of retail podcast, keynote speaker, and host of the all-new Last Request Barbecue Cooking Show on YouTube. And you can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.